And I'm on, aren't I, Jordan? Yeah, good. Yeah. So it's lambing time, or pretty much the, the end of lambing time, when we've got all of these beautiful little animals running around the paddock, and somebody may, didn't make a promise to me, but said to me, I should have brought one of my lovely, what type of rat, Dorset? Dorkers, yeah, Dorker lambs, and it would have been so cool, but it was talk only, and I finally figured it out, because um, we're going to be talking about Passover lamb, so she was probably scared that I was going to do something to it. <laughs> but anyway, so we've got a double theme going on this morning. We're going to be talking about the Passover lamb, but we're also going to be talking about themes that run through the whole Bible. Now, um, oh yeah. can you just turn that one off, thanks, so that it doesn't confuse me? Yeah, yeah. You can see on the screen behind me um, a fairly provocative sort of a question. Should we in our modern churches unhitch from the Old Testament using only the new? And you might say, well, where does that come from? I want to uh, read you something. And as I read it, I need to ask a favour, though. Can you please not fire me until I've finished reading it and explain what this is about. You'll understand what I mean by that as I go through it. Andy Stanley, Stanley's latest volume, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World, answers that question with a resounding yes. We have been on the wrong track. We need to change if we are, if we are going to reach the next generation with the gospel. What is the wrong track? It's that modern Christianity relies too much on the Old Testament. The problem with the modern church is our insistent habit of reaching back into Old Testament covenants, teachings, sayings and narratives. As a result, Christianity has lost its mojo. These vestiges of the Old Covenant have led, Stanley says, to a variety of vices in the church. Prosperity gospel, the Crusades, anti-Semitism, legalism, exclusivism, judgmentalism and more. Thus, Stanley offers a clear call to church leaders. Would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things old covenant? This is necessary because when it comes to stumbling blocks, of, blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. Put simply, when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. What do you think about that? Now I know very well that most of you would not agree with that. And the reason that, that Michael Curriger, who was writing, who included this in his article, included it there was not because he supported it at all. Rather, that he wanted to blast that idea right out of the water. And we need to blast that idea right out of the order, the water. The whole thought that the Old Testament is boring with laws, brutal legalism and genocides, that is a concept that more and more people do actually think about and talk about in our modern day. And even though we wouldn't agree with that, I do wonder whether unintentionally we do tend to practice that a little bit anyway. I'm sure that 
many of us actually, when we do our quiet times, we use apps, do we? We use apps and they give us a little verse. And then we um, read a little note or a page about it and uh, then we put it away. And some of those apps, some of those verses are from Old Testament, um, but many of them are from New Testament. But between them, those little verses, do we really connect with the whole Bible from start to finish? Do we understand the stories of the Old Testament and, um, and read them like we would read a storybook? Now, I know a lot of you do. Um, Kim and I have spent a lot of time studying in the Old Testament over this last year, and it's been really good. Um, I know that some of the ladies' groups here are studying Old Testament quite deeply, and, that, and I think that's really great. Books like Leviticus, books like Deuteronomy, and I think that is good. But we really need to make a, an active effort to actually sit down sometimes with our Bibles and just read them like we would read another book, to get the stories into our brains, to understand what really is, is back there. Here is ten reasons why we still need to connect to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was Jesus' only scripture. You know, the Old Testament makes up 75.55% of your Bible. It's three quarters of the Bible. Now, we always knew that it was bigger than the New Testament, didn't we? But it's actually three quarters of the Bible. The Old Testament uh, substantially influences our understanding of key biblical teachings. We meet the same God. It's the same God in the Old Testament as in the New. And uh, often people think that the Old Testament God is a different God to the New Testament and the way that he behaves a menacing and more strict a more legalistic God. It's not true. It's the same God. The Old Testament announces the gospel. And the Old Testament and the New Testament's call for love. And we, we learn more about love in the Old Testament than do we do actually in the New. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, he said, but to fulfill it. And so if he's going to fulfill it, what was that law that he was filling? And that's back there in the Old Testament. Jesus said that the Old Testament points to him. And it does, and we're going to look at some of that today. Failing to declare the whole counsel of God can put us in danger before the Lord. That's in Acts 20. The New Testament authors stress that God gave the Old Testament for scriptures, for Christians rather. And that's in 1 Peter, and we've just finished studying 1 Peter. It's there. And Paul commands the church leaders to preach the Old Testament. So guess what? That's our instructions. So here we go this morning. So today we're going to look at the Passover lamb. And we're going to look at it with, this, with these lenses on. We're going to look at it as the beginning of a story of redemption that carries on throughout the whole of the Bible. So I'm going to keep it quite close. And uh, what have we got up here? Hi, yeah. Um, we're going to keep it quite close. I don't have time to actually cover the whole lead up to this story because I want to focus on specific things within the story. I'm hoping that most of you do know the story. If you don't, again, then go home and read. Find Exodus and start from chapter 1 and read it consecutive right through to at least chapter 20 just to get the story that we are talking about. This, what I've got up on the slide behind me now, comes from Moses' um, experience 
when Jesus, when God speaks to him out of the burning bush. Now, when this happens, you've got to be aware that um, Moses is about 80 years old. And the troubles that have been going on in Egypt have been going on for a very long time. Joseph had gone down into Egypt way, way back in Genesis. He'd been sold into Egypt by his brothers and he became a slave there, but eventually he became prime minister and all of his family arrived down there to buy food and uh, they stayed, this is a long story short, uh, and they stayed and uh, this was 400 years that they were down in Egypt. They had a, a real welcome when they got there, but 400 years later, the whole regime has changed, the nation has grown big, and they have been turned into a whole nation of slaves living within Egypt. And then God says to Moses here, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So when I said that this has been going on for a long time, Moses is 80 years old. Now, remember that Moses himself was rescued from the reeds beside the river, all right? At that point, the pharaohs of Egypt were trying to slay all of the male babies in the land, 80 years earlier. Then Moses grows up as um, basically as pharaoh's daughter, and then something happens and he flees out of the land and he's another 40 years in the wilderness, so another 80 years have gone on. And so this is no new news. This has been happening and it's getting worse and worse. And he says to, to Moses, so I've come to rescue them and to lead them out. Um, look, the cry of the Egyptians, uh, the, of the people of Israel has reached me. I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. But that little bit in blue right in the middle there, um, the way that God deals with things is different to what's, what the world leaders of today often do that when he takes them out of Egypt, he's taking them into a new and a fertile land of their own. And so often we have these wars that go on today and they try and overthrow uh, an, a regime which is oppressive, bad, and all the rest of it, but then they walk away again and leave a total vacuum in the land. And how many times have we seen that in our own lifetime? And there's a vacuum there and then a worse regime fills the space, but God was going to take his people out of there and take them to a new land. And so Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, of course, rejects uh, his plea to let the Israelites leave the land. Um, and he brings on them plagues one by one, and there's the first of the nine plagues listed up there. We can't go through them all. Uh, nine of these plagues have already happened when we come to our story today. Um, this is what Moses said to Pharaoh. At, um, this is what the Lord says, at midnight I'm going to pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in, the ver in every family in Egypt from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the oldest son of the lowliest servant girl who grinds flour. Yeah. Um, then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt and a wail like no one has ever heard before or will ever hear again. But among the Israelites it will be so peaceful 
that not even a dog will bark, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between, between Egypt and Israel. What's happened to my thing? All, yeah, here we go. Yeah. All the firstborn of the families in Egypt will die. And this is one of the pinch points that critics of the Old Testament will use. Why such a drastic exercise? Why this particular plague that God is going to bring on Egypt? Now, I've got a little exercise that I want you to do, if that's all right. So if you've got a Bible with you or your phone or use your next-door neighbour's one if you haven't got one of your own, I want you to have a look in Exodus chapter 4, and there's a bunch of verses there uh, that makes up a paragraph between about verse 21 and 23. And if you have a look in that paragraph, you will see why God chose specifically to use this particular plague. And when you find that, you can haul it out. I realise this doesn't help our recording, um, but anyway, we've just got a wee bit of a gap while people find the answer to this question. Anybody got it yet? Why this particular plague? You'll find it between verses 21 and 23. Why this particular plague? Why was God going to do this to Egypt? Surely there were other things he could have thought of, other things he could have done, and I'm sure, but he had a specific reason for doing this. And it has to do with who Israel is. Can you see it there? Israel is Israel is the Lord's firstborn son. That's right. And since uh, so, so this is what the Lord says. The, um, Israel is my firstborn son. So I have commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. So there is a logic to it, isn't there? Yeah. And you might ask the question, why, why this? It's strong, isn't it? Why could God have not used something of slightly lower intensity? Well... He's already, he's already brought nine plagues, starting with the river turning to blood, and in each one of those, uh, those plagues that he brought, and I got it right back here, didn't I? Um, you have it here. The water, yeah, the waterways turned to blood, and each one of those um, plagues, the intensity of it was up a notch, and still Pharaoh would refuse and refuse and refuse, and with every one, he would screw the pressure down harder on the Israelites so their life became so unbearable. And people were just being cruelly oppressed by the Egyptians right through until the very last one was that one of darkness, and still Pharaoh would not... Would not, uh, would not listen. This thing's got the ghost lows on me right at the moment. Here we go. The second reason, I think, is this. 
And we need to think about this when we think about the, uh, you know, the severity of some of the things that happened in the Old Testament, that this was for his own people whom he called his firstborn and he was prepared to do what was necessary out of love to bring them out. And when none of those lower measures worked, he kept upping the strength of them until eventually they were forced to let the Israelites go. Now if you think these things are vicious, I wonder if we were to bring some of those people who lived in that day into our world today and give them a look around at what we have here, introduce them to carpet bombs, to nuclear weapons, uh, to missiles and to the sorts of things that we have going on in the world, I wonder what they would say about what goes on in our world today. Yeah, it's even more vicious than what was going on back then. So we need to understand what was happening here and the measures that God was prepared to take out of love to free his people. Um, yeah. So now we come to the actual Passover feast itself and I'm just going to, we're, we're going to do a reading now. We're going to go through these verses and see uh, what this was all about. And if you'd like to just follow with me on the screen because I have cut it down fairly tight just so that we can get through it fairly quickly. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave these following instructions to Moses and to Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. And so just like um, the nations or countries around the world today all have their own um, New Year's, we've got Chinese New Year, we've got Indian New Year, uh, we have got the uh, Matariki here in New Zealand, and around the, around the world we have all of their new worlds because they date them, their calendars from certain things that have happened, major things. So in the Israelite calendar, from this time onwards, everything, the year is marked from this Passover night. And he says, Announce to the whole community of, of, his, of Israel that on the tenth day of the month each family will choose a lamb or a young goat for sacrifice, one animal for each household. If their family is too small, they can share it. Take, the special, take special care of this chosen animal until the fourteenth day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and they are to smear it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they have got to roast the meat of the lamb over the fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. These are your instructions for eating the meal. You've got to be fully dressed. You've got to have your sandals on your feet. You've got to have your walking stick in your hand and you've got to eat the meal with urgency. It is the Lord's Passover. Because they were leaving that night. And it says that on the, on the, in verse 12, On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against, note this, against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. The power of those nations in those days was seen to be in their gods. And this was the contest between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Um, and God was going to show that the gods of Egypt, 
who was the power of the Lamb, were no match. He says, I am the Lord. But the blood on the doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's the reading of it. That's how it is said. I will pass over you. I will not go into that house and slay one. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So that's where the name Passover comes from. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at Egypt, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons of the land of Egypt from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their stock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night and a loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where somebody had not died. I don't know if you have ever been in a situation where there has been a crisis where somebody in the household young has died and you hear that wail. And I've heard it too many times in my life. But if you can just picture this, there was not a single house in the whole of Egypt other than amongst the, the Jewish families where there wasn't somebody who had died. That was a terrible night, one of the worst nights in the world ever, I think. Now I want to read this as well, verse 25. When you enter the land that the Lord has promised you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? What's the ceremony? The ceremony is where, again, where they were, were to take that animal and kill it. They were to continue to do that year after year after year. Why? And then when, the, when they did it, and when their kids asked about it, they were to say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites, and though he struck the Egyptians, he spared their families. And then when Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and they worshipped. And so from that time onwards, and we have to leave the story there because I've got other things to talk about. Uh, from that time onwards, the Israelites have kept this Passover. There were gaps, yes, there were gaps, but they came back to it. Um, but they, year after year after year, they remember what happened to them back in Egypt. This was when God redeemed them out of the land of Egypt, took them out into their country where they were going. Even in Jesus' time, on the last night before he went to the cross, he said to his disciples that he wanted to keep that Passover with his disciples one more time before he was crucified. Okay, so that became part of the Jewish culture and there were reasons for that. And so we go into the New Testament now and we, and we look at the coming of Jesus. 
to earth. All right, he was born and he grew up as a, as a young boy and he became a carpenter. And of course, we know that his purpose in coming was that he would go to the cross and he would also become a Passover lamb. But on the very first day, you could say, of Jesus in his new job, Jesus in his role, his public ministry, John the Baptist is baptising people. Right? He's been doing it for a little time, for a little while, and he's been preparing the people for the fact that Jesus is coming. Right? And so people come to him, he preaches to them, he baptises them, he's got, they're getting ready for the fact that, that the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus comes. And like I said, this is Jesus' first day in his ministry. And he comes to John, and what does John say? The next day, next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's big, because in that, this links Jesus directly back to that Passover story. And as down through the, through the years of the, of the Israelite nation from the Passover time until this, as they had kept sacrifices for sin and as they had kept that Passover year after year after year, they kept looking for somebody who would come and who would be the God's own Passover lamb. And so when John introduces Jesus this way, he is linking Jesus back to the Passover and saying, this is the Passover lamb, the real Passover lamb. Then, just before he died, he is in that upper room with his disciples and he is keeping the Passover and this is what he does while he is there. He takes some bread and he gives thanks to God for it and he breaks it into pieces and he gives it to his disciples and he, this is what he says. He says, this is my body which is given to you. Now this is traditional stuff that happens in a Passover meal. All right? And so year after year after year they have done this and they keep remembering how that God had taken them out of Egypt but they also keep looking forward to the Messiah day who would come. And here Jesus says to his disciples, you need to get this. He says, this is my body. As he breaks that bread, and he says, this is my body, which is given to you. And then he takes another cup of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice to you. And so the people realised then, or hopefully they understood it, they certainly understood it afterwards, that what Jesus was saying to them, that this, which we now call communion, is a remembrance of that Passover lamb. So you can see that what started away back there in those, um, in those years in the land of Egypt, and which became part of their history, and it became part of the concept and right that went right through the Old Testament of the Bible. And we come to this and now all of a sudden we see that this whole thing about Jesus coming and dying on the cross as a sacrifice is a fulfilment of what they actually saw our way back there in Egypt. 
So that, is, that brings us right up to the night before the crucifixion. So when we have communion here, that's exactly what we're doing as well. Now let's look forward even further, and this is out there in the future still. How far in the future? We don't really know. But John now, one of those disciples who was actually at that table, he was a prisoner on Patmos Island, and he was given this revelation about the things that are going to happen in the future. And he sees this scroll which... In that scroll is written the things that are going to happen out in the future. And he weeps, it says, because he weeps because there was nobody worthy enough to open that scroll. But then somebody says to him, Stop weeping, look. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, and Jesus was said to be the heir to David's throne, he was the one who would finally sit on the throne. He has won the victory and he is worthy to open the scroll and it's seven years. Seven years, it's seven seals, try that one. And I looked and what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. You know, lion, the king of the jungle, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Kim and I went through a place in um, Singapore one night where they've got, it's a national, it's a wildlife park where you can go and in nighttime you see all these animals in the wild and in the middle of the night you walk down this pathway and there's no fences between you and them and there's all these animals in the wild and uh, you was Nikki, she'll know all about that one. Yeah, and we, so we saw that and here's, we saw these, the king of the jungles there in the bush there in the wild, um, well, it's controlled, it's controlled, but we were able to walk through there and view it. And a lion is a big and a powerful animal. But when, but when John looks to see that lion, what he sees is not a lion, but he sees a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. So the picture is all very symbolic, I know, but it's all got very, very deep meaning. So he looks and he sees that lamb slain. And that's where Jesus' strength comes from. In that, he allowed himself, that, that, that lamb who had come from heaven, he allowed himself to be taken by sinful men and crucified, slaughtered, and then he is raised again from the dead. And in that, he breaks the power of death because he has paid all of God's requirements for sin and he breaks the power of death when he rises again from the dead. And he said, I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. And so that's as far as I'm going to go with that today. But I wanted just to think about where we, is it up there? Yes, it's up there. Yeah, um, about what that actually means to us today. When the Israelites were preparing for this Passover, it took for them active participation for them to not be one of the Egyptians who were slain. Right? They were told to take the lamb and then watch it for 14 days, make sure that it was a good one, and then on the night they had to kill it. And so they killed it, and then they took, got the blood. They had to catch the blood, and they would paint the blood up the doorposts with their 14-inch 
bushy paintbrush, whatever they used back in those days, smeared it across the doorpost. They had to actually do that. If you can imagine where they were on that particular night, they have seen nine plagues already and nothing has happened. They're still in the land. Can you imagine that some of them might have said, hey, I don't want to do this. Is it really going to happen this time or is it just going to be like the others where the uh, Egyptians are going to screw us down even harder? And others would say, hey, look, yes, you have to do this because if you don't, you will be like one of the Egyptians. You will die also. You need to do this. And so together they actively do it. They slay the lamb and they put the blood there. They do it. And that's the sign of their acceptance. There's a sign of their belief that God was going to free them tonight. And so they did it. And so today we are not required to kill a lamb. The lamb has died already. Jesus has died on the cross. But we have to do that mentally. We have to do that in our hearts. And it says in Romans, if you openly declare that, the, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We need to do it. We need to do it in a way that is real to us and that others around us will see. You can imagine back then on the day that they, uh, the Israelites, um, when they did it, of course, the people, the first person to see it, of course, that they wanted to see it was God the destroyer, as he moved throughout the land, they wanted him to see that blood. And for them, that was their salvation. The Egyptians would also see, wouldn't they? They would think, strange things going on in Gotham tonight. Everybody painting blood over their doorpost. Pharaoh has been warned. I wonder how many of them have been warned that this was going to happen tonight. They knew. And when we believe, the people around us will know as well. We cannot do these things in a vacuum. When we believe in Jesus, it does change their lives. And people will say of us, yeah, strange things happened in the life of that guy. He's gone. He's a Jesus freak now. All right? He's become a Christian. Yeah. But then there's a third person, that third group of people that would have seen it away back there in the land of Gotham, as, uh, as well as the Egyptians seeing it. Of course, the other group of people around them who would have seen it was their own people. And when we make decisions, our own family sees it, doesn't it? And our own neighbours. But hopefully they are the ones that give us support and they give us strength. And when our, and we do it here, when we believe in Jesus even today, the people are going to see it are the people here in our seats as well. And that's why we need Christian community. We need the support of our fellow people who will keep us on track. You know, we do have doubts sometimes. We need each other and together we can gain strength in our belief and in our faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah. I think that was all. Yeah. Okay.